Now, good day there, and welcome to the rewrap for Tuesday. All the best bits from the Mike Hosking breakfast on News Talk ZB in a sillier package. I am Glenn ZB. And uh, this morning, uh, all these kids that are leaving school without any qualifications at all, is this the end of the world? Um, we need to uh, talk about uh, all these basket case councils, which we seem, certainly seem to have all around the country. Um, freedom campers, cracking down on freedom campers. Is this the end of tourism as we know it? And uh, how are you going to be able to fly again internationally? What it will take. But first up, uh, increasing the minimum wage to increase productivity. Will it work? Please say yes or no. So here you go. Mike, if a supermarket employs 200 people at a minimum wage and they get a dollar an hour increase, that costs the supermarket eight grand a week, 416 grand a year. The only way the supermarket's going to cover that is by laying off staff or increasing the price of goods. That's what I was trying to argue. I mean, this is the problem with productivity. Productivity is not related to wages. You Just doing more is not productivity. If you produce six boxes a day and you suddenly work harder or longer and produce seven boxes a day, that's not productivity. Productivity more more or less is often linked to automation. That's where you get real productivity and it's more or less related to what you actually make. If you're only ever going to make boxes, you're only ever going to be in a low-wage economy. If you're going to make stuff that's high-end, that has no limit, think, you know, Beck, Rocket Lab, those sort of things, that's where your money that's where your productivity and that's where your future success really is. Look, I think there's only one way to settle this and that is with uh, rigorous experimentation. Pay me a lot more money and see if I become a lot more productive. That's my suggestion. Um, am I... I mean, I'm not very good at my job. I'm the first one to admit it. Is it because I I just wasn't qualified enough when I left school? Remarkable number for you. So remarkable you wonder how it's possible. Last year, the number of kids who left school with no qualifications went up again. 12% of those who left school left with nothing. No NCEA the year before it was 11%. So not only is it up, the fact it was 11% in 2018, I would have thought as a crime in and of itself. For a start... NCEA is not that hard to get, not hard because of the number of subjects you can choose, the ease of the pathway that's offered these days, the general sense that testing, if that's what you still want to call it, is spread so far and so wide with assessments and mock tests, it seems almost impossible to fail. So the first question is surely, what the hell is going wrong? Is it the teaching? Is it the kids? Is it the home environment? Is it the methodology? Is it the subjects and the material they use? Or more likely, of course, a combination. It's one thing to go part of the way. I mean, two of our kids did. Got level one, got level two, decided school wasn't for them. There was a big wide world out there. They wanted to be a part of it, so they left. Ditched level three. Got jobs. They're loving life. They're building their own path. I mean, that's what I did all those years ago. Never looked back, never regretted a minute. So there is an emphasis, I think, on school that has been overplayed these past few decades. I mean, school isn't everything. NCEA isn't a magic ticket, but, but, no qualifications at all, yet you're nowhere. Is there enough evidence now that the way we are teaching damages a lot of kids? Is there enough concern that the business of schooling is clearly failing too many? Are there too many basket case homes where school isn't a priority? So in totality, has this problem been going on for far too many years, us knowing about it, and yet it's still not being addressed? It is proof, I suspect, of the gap that we so often hear about, why some people simply can't get a job, despite industry after industry screaming out for labour. The welfare bill grows and grows to support those who cannot contribute, and most likely, let's be blunt, never will. And here's the thing I have trouble getting my head around in the first place. Why would you want that for yourself, eh? Why? Why in a life where all is possible would you have given up 
before you even really got started. It's weird because I thought um, a contributing factor to kids leaving school early was the fact that they were going to work. Isn't that... Uh, I didn't th- realise that it was kids just leaving to not go to work. Um, that's what I left to do. I mean, when I say go to work, I, I went and I basked uh, every day, four hours a day, and made about the same as I would have in the doll. Didn't go on the doll. So basically what I'm saying is we should teach everybody to learn to play the guitar. And I'll leave it at that. Um, as long as the councils don't crack down on uh, buskers, they should be fine. Mind you, you can't trust councils to do anything these days, can you? Uh, Tim Shadbolt, it's very sad business in Invercargill, and the report came out yesterday. Funnily enough, when I started the program yesterday, uh, with an editorial basically saying that the entire local government system's buggered, I had no idea the report was coming out yesterday or what it would say. It's just ironic that there's so much ineptitude now up and down this country at local government level that, um, you know, it's another day, another report, another day, another resignation. Got Tembi Powell in Tauranga on Friday. Uh, you got the nonsense over Shelley Bay in Wellington. You got the mayor maybe setting up a tent, maybe not. You got all the acrimony going on in Wellington. You got the bust up at the board level in Christchurch. I mean, where do I stop? You've got the $10 billion in hedging in Auckland, $10 billion worth of debt, and they hedged it all at rates twice the current rate. That's how inept they are. And then you've got the report out in Invercargill. Then, of course, we had the people up in Northland, three councils, and they've started a petition up in Northland. They voted for Maori wards. And, of course, they're going to have to start a petition. And once you get 5% uh, of the petition, then the council's got to vote on it. Because what councils are doing now, and this got reiterated yesterday in Taupo as well, what councils are doing now are voting for Maori wards to introduce Maori wards, and then they're voting again to not put it to a vote, which is the most arrogant aspect possible of local representation. You're either representing the locals or you're not. And the reason they're voting not to put it to the vote is they know full well that when it's previously been put to the vote, they lose each and every time because it is not what New Zealanders want. Separation, segregation, racist policy is no way forward for a country. And so what happens under the laws of this land is you have to then hustle as a local. You've got to get 5% of the base. If you get 5% of the base, you then force the council to have a vote. And when the council is forced to have a vote, they inevitably lose. So Taupo yesterday voted to introduce Maori wards for the next vote. They rejected the option of holding a poll of electors, seven councillors to three. Your job in Taupo is to find out who the seven are. Find out who the seven are, make them accountable for their actions, preferably next time vote them out. But in the meantime, raise the 5%, get your electoral rights and do something about it. Because, of course, they're putting it back on you. And this all comes down to the business of what the government are going to do about all of these councils. But according to the last time I asked you, just send her, send her a do, and she didn't have a clue. Mike, when has this government ever taken over a council? You're not going to appoint anybody to run the councils, is what I'm asking. No. Then why are you writing letters asking for information from the minister's department then? Um, look, Mike, I can't speak to that in detail, but no, we are not taking over a democratically elected council what they're doing in Tauranga and that's what they're looking to do in Invercargill and that's why those months ago I asked the question she didn't have a clue clearly what was going on at the time. It's a tricky one isn't it? I mean the argument's being made today that people knew exactly who they were voting for when they voted Tim Shabolt back in and it's it's a bit like Trump isn't it? I mean people knew. Nobody was trying to hide his um, what do you call them? His negative attributes and some of the people found those particular attributes to their liking and voted for them anyway. 
uh, for or against freedom camping. Uh, it seems like student, Stuart Nash is against, but it doesn't mean he's against all tourism, of course. But yeah, I sort of let Stuart Nash's first foray into tourism slide because, I mean, we have him on the show every week. We kind of covered it off at the time. But what an astonishing ongoing can we get over it and move on kind of reaction we've continued to have. You do realise he's not banning people, don't you? All he said is we want to target the wealthy. We don't want people crapping in our waterways. And all that got banned was some vans with no toilets. To judge by the headlines and the op-eds and the whinging and the hand-wringing and the yelping, you'd think he'd gone to Auckland Airport and set up a kiosk that when the borders open again would be staffed by people shaking down arriving tourists and anyone caught with less than 20 grand would be frog-marched back to the plane. It's yet another sign, sadly, that you can't have an idea in this country, an eminently sensible idea, without the usual array of doom merchants lining up to tell you where you've gone wrong and how anything to do with money and success is bad news, and we want none on of it. Uh, Before COVID, when we had an international tourist industry, uh, there was general, if not universal, agreement that we had far too many people coming into the country for little net gain. Small towns were inundated, no facilities, car parks, toilets, couldn't cope. There were fly-in, fly-out bus tours, draining resource for no great return. We'd already decided quality over quantity was the way forward. All Stuart did was articulate that and ban some cheap vans. He's not banning backpackers. He's not closing youth hostels. He's not shuttering any hotels that aren't five-star. He's simply wanting to do what we'd already decided was a good idea, and it is. When you're the cream of the crop, and we are, you can be selective, you can set the agenda. And why, given our beauty, international reputation and demand, wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we charge through the nose for the experience? I mean, do you want 10 at 100 bucks or 1 at 1,000 bucks? Uh, do we do mass or select? Are we economy or business? Are we Motel 6 or the Ritz-Carlton? The answer's simple. We just hadn't got past the point of talking and on to the doing. The hope comes in the form of a new minister who gets it. Tourism is the golden goose, or a golden goose. It is business, not a charity. So let's get on with it. Yeah, basically what we want is a pay-to-poo scheme, right? Because that's what it always comes down to with the Freedom Campers. I'm convinced of it. People are just nervous about exactly where they're going to poo. And as long as they pay for it, maybe we'll just end up with better public toilets. That would be the ideal scenario. Uh, We're going to finish up with uh, the measures you might have to take in future if you want to fly anywhere other than here. So here's the key to all of this. This This is the critical part of the vaccine equation. When you get jabbed, the borders are opened up. The world returns to normality, right? And part of that, and the question is, what about all the people who go, well, I'm not having one? and how they're going to make me, and do we have a major issue with that? The answer is probably yes, but here's what Alan Joyce said on television in Australia last night. If you want to board a plane to go anywhere international, you're going to have to have a vaccine and proof of it, and that is going to be the industry norm. So they plan to insist that passengers on their flights are vaccinated before boarding. It will become a necessity, he thinks, for international travel. I mean, once one starts, they're all going to be on board. So in other words, if you ever want to leave the country again, and you're thinking, I'm not going to get a jab, tough luck, Take your pick. Either get jabbed or never travel again. Uh, They're looking at changing the terms and conditions when you purchase a ticket. And so that is essentially how they're going to get needles in people's arms. And I guess that's really no different. To, I mean, but pre-COVID, if you, there were lots of places that if you wanted to go there, you were best to get a series of shots and you just add the COVID in there to that process, I suppose. Um... Why does it have to be with a needle? With all this research that they're doing, could they not have figured out how it could just be, I don't know, in a beer? Just take it with your beer? Uh, what do they call that? A tincture? Why does everything always have to be injected into you? Why haven't they figured out a better way to do it than that? I'm Glenn ZB, asking 
stupid but important questions. And I'll do it all again tomorrow with another rewrap. See you then.